Well, good evening to you. It's awfully nice to be back with you here at Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church. With that last song, I thought, you know, it, uh, such a great word there. And one thing I know, uh, Pastor Bob and I go back, I guess, about 18, 19 years. And one thing I know is you feast on the Word of God every time Pastor Bob steps up, don't you? Such a sound and capable and able Bible teacher. You are blessed with that. Not every pulpit is, by the way. So you get to feast. And then I thought, you know, there's a little irony here. It looks, when I came in the door tonight, that Bob hasn't been feasting physically. I mean, does he look fantastic? That is uh, such great discipline and challenge to me. Probably won't go any further, but still a, <laughs> still something that I ought to do, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, wonderful to be uh, back here. You have been such a great blessing to us. And I remember we uh, brought Mithra Satchelari from India over here. It's probably been 10, 12, 14 years now. And you were such a blessing and received him with open arms. And you helped that ministry when they, they needed you desperately. And uh, then they were able, by the grace of God, to become one of our teleos, uh, fully mature members, self-reliant. And uh, then you were so gracious to take that very support and now help a couple other countries in, in great need. Uh, Pakistan. People often ask me, how in the world do you get chaplains in Pakistan? And I, honest, my answer is I don't have a clue. Uh, I, I do know this, that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. That's what I know. And the doors that God opens, Christ opens, no man can close. And the doors he closes, no man can open. So as the Lord gives us opportunity and opens the door, we want to go through and seize the opportunity because you never know when the door might close. But at least we're getting the national chaplains trained and uh, equipped for the ministry uh, of, of the word of God. So... Uh, thank you, Pastor Bob, and all your people here uh, who partner with us in such a very, very generous uh, and faithful manner. You give a lot of money. I mean, you give a lot of money. You're one of our best supporting churches. And humanly speaking, without churches like you, we simply couldn't do what we do. I mean, that's just it, humanly speaking. So I thank you on behalf of our chaplains in Pakistan and in Tumen, uh, Siberia as, uh, as well. Uh, I want to introduce two of my uh, guests with me tonight, two friends, one of my, my very best friend, Larry Gurley. Larry, if you just wave your hand or stand or do something or tap dance. Uh, Larry's a, a, uh, uh, one of the smartest, wisest businessmen with solid biblical and theological base that I've ever known in my life. And I really grew up in a family of business, uh, Christian businessmen. Uh, but Larry has been such a great blessing to us. He's also president of Baptist Missions and uh, been a great help to us. He's on our board of directors. He's also on our in a newly formed international committee as of about 18 months. He's traveled, if you can believe this, and I might even add at his own nickel, he's traveled with me. Uh, we've traveled together in 16 countries. Uh, of the 25 in which we have chaplains. I, I don't hesitate saying this. He knows our African ministry better than I do. Uh, he spent so much. He spent more time there with individually with him than, than I've been able to. So, so glad to have him. He lives in Hilton Head now. He used to live in Memphis for years. So he's a local face for you. 
And anytime you would have any question about anything, I'm always available to you, but Larry's right next door. And he'd be glad to meet with anyone at any time uh, because his heart is with our ministry. God has moved his heart that way. Second person, Adam Copeland. Uh, Adam, if you would just stand up, let him see. You're a much more handsome guy than Larry. Uh, so Adam's uh, the most recent one. And if you've been praying for us, you know one of the things we've prayed about is my succession plan. And we're praying for two individuals, uh, a director of international chaplains who will be the hands-on cross-cultural guy working with our area directors and our national directors. All of our people are nationals, as you know. And uh, Adam uh, served five years in Turkey, uh, planning a church among a Muslim people group uh, with the uh, International Mission Board. He's a graduate of Dallas Seminary with a master's in missiology, a uh, MDiv from Southeastern Seminary, and uh, served five uh, served active eight years in, uh, I should say, in reserve in the Marine Corps and uh, served active duty over in Iraq as well. Has a wife and four children. And uh, he joined us and now he's becoming integrated into the operations of the international ministry. So uh, he's here in Hilton Head visiting a few days. And I really, I told him, I said, these are the best churches in this area. Uh, Ferguson Avenue Baptist Grace Community, where I was this morning, Community Bible I'll be speaking at over in Beaufort Wednesday night, uh, Savannah Christian, uh, Compassion Christian Church. These are some of our strongest supporting chaplains of international ministry, and uh, I really want to expose Adam to our uh, pastors and of these churches as well as them uh, to him. Uh, so having said all that, Pastor Bob usually gives me the, uh, the direction to go, and tonight the direction is just a uh, short uh, update on what's happening and uh, your investment, uh, and then we're going to go right from this just short update for you. I can't see the slides because they're in back of me, but Tim Wade's been a great help to me preparing for tonight. I thank him because he got this stuff arranged ahead of time so we could... Uh, uh, move uh, move along. So after the brief report, we're going to have a, a short message. Well, I shouldn't say a short. I should say a message uh, from the Word of God. I asked Pastor Bob, I said, now how long do I have tonight? He's, he said the thing that you should never say to a preacher. He said, you just preach as long as you want. But then he added, but we're leaving at 7 o'clock. So you can just go on and on and on if you want to. We're leaving at 7, so we're going to get you out of here. Uh, right on time uh, for sure, Lord one. Okay, as you can see on the screen and back to you, we have about 335 international directors, chaplains, uh, and staff serving in 25 countries and one American territory. And we have a lot of other countries uh, that are making uh, their introduction, wanting help, and we're just trying to uh, sense the Lord's leading each step of the way, as well as adding pres chaplains to our present countries of ministry. Uh, statistics, you know, they're just kind of a little barometer, but you get the idea in 2015 between first-time commitments and uh, rededication, there were about 42,000. And then when you look at 2016, about uh, 68,000. So uh, we try to explain to our chaplains that a decision for Christ isn't when you're in a meeting such as this, say, in a, in a prison and 50 people raise their hand. That's not a decision. We don't count that. 
uh, we try to make sure they understand a decision is when a chaplain and or volunteer sits down one-on-one -on -one individually and to the best of their understanding that person has come to the understanding and acknowledgement and trust in uh, Christ as personal savior. Now we've, we've done this for 19 years and it's taken sometimes longer in some countries for this to get through because I have a feeling in some countries they think if they report there's more decisions they might get more money and uh, that's not the case at all we just want to to reflect what we think is is kind of going on we had one country over in Africa where we really had to put the clamp down because more people were getting saved every month than were in the prison and what was happening, they'd have a mass meeting and 100 people raised their hand and the same 100 raised their hand next week. We had people being born again and again and again and again, over and over again. So we kind of clamped down on that and hopefully these are a little bit re more reliable for you. If we move on to Pakistan, uh, in most of these countries and especially the Islamic countries, you're not allowed any kind of videos or uh, pictures taken inside uh, the prison and so you can't see because we can't get any pictures inside the prison. But one of the ministries that we have, especially in the Islamic countries, uh, that is very strong is not only to the inmates, and it is strong uh, there, and that's our primary focus, but also to the families of inmates. The children of inmates suffer greatly, and you see before you four children whose mother left them a long time ago, and now the father is in prison for stealing and murder. Our chaplains visit with these families as much as is possible. The picture of the two women shows a mother, a daughter-in-law, uh, and the grandchild, the woman's son, husband of the daughter-in-law, is in prison, and uh, there's no man in the family to help or protect these women. And uh, you know what you read and what you hear on the news, that a woman in the Islamic countries is not esteemed uh, as high as a man. In fact, she's not esteemed much higher than a piece of property. And so these are really the people that are the most forgotten and uh, the most neglected and the downtrodden. Uh, our chaplains visit and pray with them and help them even in material ways as they can. Our emphasis is always the gospel. It's always evangelism, discipleship, and pastoral care. But in almost every country we serve, there are so many humanitarian needs that just break your heart. Little babies in prison with their mothers who gave birth in prison. I showed a picture this morning of a prison in Khartoum, Sudan. And uh, there's 800 women and there's 300 children under the age of five. And they can stay there until the age of uh, five. And then they either have to go with a family member or social services or something. But many don't even have milk or nutrients. And so our chaplains help uh, with that. In the next slide, you see the man in the blue shirt is William. Uh, he was falsely accused of murder, feared for his own life in prison. And our chaplains uh, prayed with him. They ministered to him. And now they're praising God with him because he was proven not guilty and is a free man. Saeed is bringing up his son on his own as his wife is in prison accused of stealing. All that to simply say life's not easy in these situations. And it's our prayer that Saeed's wife will uh, soon be released. If we move now from Pakistan to Siberia, this is the other uh, country that you so generously support. Just recently, the National Director for Tumen, our men, McTumen, traveled with two other chaplains to the area known as the Perm region. And there they met with Chaplain Anna, who you see meeting with an inmate who's serving a life sentence uh, because uh, of his severity of his crime, you'll notice He's pictured there with still being handcuffed. The second picture is a service being held in one of the women prisons uh, in that area. 
Moving on, you see musicians, uh, sometimes inmates, volunteers providing the music for the worship services. And in the second picture, our men is sharing the gospel with a group, a group of men gathered for a prison service. I'll just mention one uh, short story of a man uh, who's like many that you see in this picture. His picture's not actually up there, but his name is Eugene. Eugene was brought up in what he called was an ordinary family in, in Siberia. His father had no faith, and Eugene remembers his dad saying he didn't believe in God, he didn't believe in the devil. And as Eugene grew, he became addicted to drugs like many people in the former Soviet Union uh, have done, and then they find stealing as a way to to uh, subsidizing in order to purchase more drugs. After a few years, he was caught, sentenced to eight years in prison. All I can say to you, even if you've been to a prison here locally in Chatham County or a state prison uh, near you, um, I don't mean to minimize it because when a man loses his freedom, that's about the greatest loss you can lose, uh, that you can have. But prisons in the USA are almost like um, Sunday school picnics compared to places like Pakistan or Egypt or, or Siberia. Uh, they are dark, dark, desperate, dangerous places. Well, Eugene was sentenced to eight years in prison, and for the first six years in prison, he continued to use the drugs. You can get just about anything inside the walls. You can get outside, as you well know. And as he came closer to his release, he thought that life would continue just as it had before. Uh, until uh, he says that he came near the death experience uh, with the drugs he was using. Let me now quote his own words. Here's what he writes. And I, I didn't clean up any English or anything. At that time, I met a believer who often talked to me about God and prayed for me, a fellow inmate that would be. The Lord began to touch my heart and change it. I began to read the New Testament, and then I began to open my heart to the Word of God. I realized I was a worthless man. I felt ashamed of my life. But loving the Lord God made a miracle in my life in two days after I uttered a prayer of repentance. If you've ever visited the former Soviet Union, repentance is a huge word. In fact, they will use repentance in the same way you and I use the word trusting or believing in Christ as your Savior. They'll say we came to repentance, which means trusting Christ as Savior. I uttered a prayer of repentance. I stopped injecting drugs, deceiving others. I quit smoking and I stopped swearing. It's interesting. They all smoke and they all have to stop smoking after they get saved. I remember a guy in prison asked me one time here in the USA. He looked at me. He said, Harry, I got a question. I said, yeah. He says, I've become a Christian. Good. He says, now that I'm a Christian, can I still go to heaven if I still smoke? <laughs> I said, well, of course you can. You'll get there sooner than the rest of us. So uh, <laughs> have a ball. Uh, it is wonderful to live with God and understand that all your sins are forgiven. I now understand the words of Jesus, go and sin no more. I am very grateful to those brothers and sisters who came to us in the prison, carried the word of God for their support and prayers for us. Bless the Lord, all the ministers who are in prison looking for lost sheep. You know what I get excited about with you tonight in Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church? It's simply this, that if I understand Luke 16 correctly, and I think I do, and if I understand verse 9 correctly, and again, I think I do, that what that tells me is this, that someday you're going to see people like Eugene or Catherine or whoever the person is, and they're going to come up to you in heaven someday, and they're going to say, you're my friend. 
And you're going to look at them and you're going to say, you know, I don't think I've ever met you before. They said, no, we never met. But I was in prison in Siberia. Or I was in prison in Pakistan. And a chaplain came along and he gave me the gospel and I trusted Christ. And then I began asking questions about why are you here? How can you be here? And then they told me about a group over in America, churches and individuals and a group that places chaplains, and how they all came together. And because of them and their love for God and love for the souls of men around the world, they sent money that provided chaplaincy for over here to be trained and to go in the prisons. And now by the use of their money, I now receive you as my friend into everlasting habitations. You read Luke 16, that's what it says in verse 9, that by use of your finances... You can make an eternal impact like you're doing in Pakistan too, and many other places that you have a missionary outreach. Let me just say this. I hope these stories encourage you. I really do. That's why I like to come in person and share them with you. But I'm telling you what. It's nothing. Absolutely nothing. Compared to what it's going to be like when you get up to heaven someday. And then you see because of your prayers and your giving and your influence. Others are there with eternal life, because God used you and Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church to help our chaplains. So on behalf of chaplain, our director, our men, on behalf of Babar Aladita in Pakistan, our chaplains there, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your generosity, your faithfulness, and your goodness to us. We appreciate it more than you could ever know. Now, if you would take your Bibles, if you have one, and turn to Luke chapter 9. I'd like to share a few thoughts with you and really dealing with the area of the cost of discipleship. Now, there's differences of opinion, and men smarter than I may and do have different opinions. I'm going to make one statement here, and you may agree with it, and you may not. The statement is simply this. Salvation to come to know the joy of sins forgiven and eternal life is a free gift and costs you nothing. It costs God's son everything as he suffered on the cross. It costs you nothing. It's by grace through faith. But to come to the absolute lordship where Christ is the master king and lord over every dimension of your life, what we call committed discipleship, that's going to cost you something. It's not only going to cost you something, it's going to cost you everything if you make that full commitment to the Lordship of Christ. So we pick it up in Luke chapter 9, and let me just, uh, in fact, let me jump on down to verse 23, Luke chapter 9. And he said to them all, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whosoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. A.W. Tozer once wrote these words. Your concept of the Lord Jesus Christ is the most important thing in your life. And I think he's right. 
Both Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus has retreated now in his ministry about 25 uh, miles north of the Sea of Galilee. Today, if you went to Israel, and I know some of you have been, it would be at a place called what we call Caesarea Philippi. Back in those days, it was called Panias, P-A-N-I-A-S, named after the Greek goddess of fertility, the Greek goddess Pan. Today, it's just the B instead of the P, and it's a little place called Banios. But it's the same place where this event took place. It was sacred to the worshipers of the Canaanite deities. It was the religious center of primeval Syria. And it's Baal sanctuaries you read about throughout the Old Testament uh, before the Exodus. And in Joshua and in Judges, it's called Baal Hermon. So we put Pan, Banias, Panias, uh, Baal Hermon, and you put all these uh, words together, what you have is a place where you had many false religions and gods who were exalted and extolled. So it's really quite the place if we go back now to just a few verses. When Jesus would ask them the question in verse 18 of chapter 9, he asked his disciples who joined him and said, who do the crowds say that I am? This is where he said that. Up there in Caesarea Philippi, where he had all this pagan background, all these false gods. And Jesus says, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So it's a passage that deals with the cost of discipleship. And let me say, first of all, that it begins with my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. It begins with my relationship with Christ. The message and ministry of Jesus has been so compelling People were forced to take sides. He came with a sword, and that sword divided men. And never is that division so great as to one's comprehension perception as to the question, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, the Lord wasn't seeking information in verse 18. We know that. But he was, he was bringing these men to a place where they would have to articulate their position, what they really believed about the person of Christ. It was a watershed point. Well, the answer in verses 19 and 20, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others one of the old prophets. And Matthew, by the way, adds the name Jeremiah there as well. And, you know, I thought to myself that if someone were to come up to your pastor or to me or a preacher and say, you know, you remind me of John the Baptist. Or you remind me of Jeremiah or Elijah. That would be quite the compliment, wouldn't it? I mean, we would feel pretty good about that. But when you say that Jesus is Jeremiah or one of the prophets or uh, Elijah, then it presents a woeful ignorance of the evidence that Christ has been presenting that he's indeed the Messiah, the King of Israel, the Son of God. And finally, it's Peter, as you well know, who says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus makes a very interesting statement after that. He says, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You don't get that knowledge of the Lordship of Christ through study or through human reasoning, except the Holy Spirit illuminates the mind and shows you the truth about who the Lord Jesus is, you can't even confess him as Jesus as Lord. 
The Holy Spirit has to take this dead in mind of mind and my, my, and my, and my dead heart and open it to the truths uh, of the word of God. I think it's true this evening that the Lord Jesus asked us the same question tonight. Who do you say that I am? Not who does your mother or your father or your grandpa, who do you say that I am? What is your response to that? Every one of us has to have a response. I was speaking this morning over at Grace Community in Hilton Head, and they partnered with us in a uh, substantially in the in the Middle East, primarily Egypt, but they helped us also start Lebanon. And we have a good, strong ministry in Lebanon, and with three chaplains. And Chaplain Eli Barrow was appointed just recently as one of our new male chaplains, and uh, he sent us the testimony of a former inmate named Faisal. Now, Faisal was forty-two years old. He was raised as a Shiite Muslim, and Fizel had read the New Testament several times. And then he began comparing it as he was reading it and comparing it to the Quran. And he found the love and mercy and grace he loved in the Bible that he didn't find in the Quran. But he could not understand or accept the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ, especially the incarnation was such a mind-blowing thing to him. As, as, as well as the fact that Jesus was the second person of the Trinity. So Chaplain Nehi, after many meetings with him and going to the scriptures, uh, finally left him a book. Many of you have read it. It was printed 40 years ago this year. Uh, Josh McDowell's book, More Than a Carpenter. And God used that book, More Than a Carpenter, as Fazel was reading it. And the Holy Spirit opened his mind and he trusted in Christ as a Savior. He finished his 11-year prison sentence. And now he's attending the same uh, church uh, over in Beirut as Chaplain Eli. And he's preparing for baptism. Fazel had to answer that question. He had to come to grips with it. Who do you say that I am? And anything less then fully God and fully man is inadequate. Jesus Christ is every bit God and deity as the Father. The Father does not have one attribute that Jesus does not have. Jesus does not have one attribute that the Holy Spirit doesn't have. We believe in the historic view of the triunity of God. There is one God eternally existing in three persons, co-equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Who do you say that I am? C.T. Stead, a great missionary to China with Hudson Taylor, was not only a great servant of God, we've all read about him, we've heard about him, but after leaving uh, as a missionary to China, he inherited uh, what then was a huge, we would say today multi-millions, but about a million dollars he inherited in a large fortune from his father. And he gave it all away. And it's interesting, he gave it away to the work of another man all of us have heard about and read about by the name of George Muir, who, who established orphanages uh, all over. And George was a great, Muir was a great man of faith. And sometimes he would pray, they say, at the dinner table without any food with orphans. And he would pray God would supply and, and God honored that man of faith and his prayer of faith. But God used C.T. Studd. And then when C.T. Studd was asked, why would you give away all that money? Why give it all away? I love his answer. I think they're as compelling as any words. If Jesus Christ be God, if you really believe that, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice 
can be too great for me to make for him. Do you say amen to that in your heart? You don't have to say it out loud because I'm getting the feeling I'm in an Episcopalian church instead of a Baptist church, but that's okay. You say it in your heart. That's the key. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, can you think of any sacrifice any person can ever make that would be too great to make or that he would regret having made? Your relationship to Jesus Christ begins it all. And you've got to answer the question, who is he? Is he God? Take it even the next step. Did he die for me? Therefore, if I totally yield to him, is any sacrifice too great? Now, let's look at the requirements of Jesus Christ for, uh, for discipleship. I'm just going to take four quick words with you out of the verse of 23. First one is desire. First one is desire. If anyone desires to come after me. Isn't that good? There's no manipulation. There's no coercion. There's no one coming heavy-handed on you. If any man wishes. I love that. Has the Holy Spirit put a desire in your mind and heart? To sell out everything you are and have to his lordship. Has he put that desire there? If any man desires. Let me tell you something. There are a lot of believers that don't desire the lordship of Christ over their life. Because they're smart enough to know it's going to cost them something. And they're not willing to pay the cost. But to those to whom the Lord Holy Spirit puts that desire in their heart. That's a hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Notice furthermore, he says, it's addressed to any man. If any man, no one's excluded. And it's daily so that it's 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year for a lifetime. Do you desire that? Has God put that desire in your heart? Young people, has God put that desire in your heart for the rest of your life to say, I will follow him regardless of the cost? Second word is denial. Notice he says in verse 23, if any man desires to come after me, let him deny himself. This is not giving up things. It's not stopping smoking but rather it's something much more foundational and basic. It's a vow to give the control of my life over to Christ himself. It's a decisive, rational, calculated choice. It's ultimately the giving up of the right of self-determination. Do you really want to do that? Are you sure? No longer do you say, this is what I'm going to do. No longer, this is where I'm going to call you. No longer, this is who I'm going to marry. Lord, it's always prefaced by, Lord, what would you have me to do? Many times he gives us the desires of our heart. But the key is, so many times, believers make their decisions, and then what? They ask God to bless it. Instead of first of all saying, Lord, what is your will for my life? 
To know the will of God, George Truett said, is the greatest knowledge, and it is. To do the will of God is the greatest achievement. So when it's all said and done, did you know my will? And did you do my will? And let me tell you this, you, on, on the basis of Romans 12, 1 and 2 and many other verses, you cannot know the will of God without being a fully surrendered servant of Christ. It's only when, by the mercies of God, after understanding everything about sin and condemnation, salvation, justification, sanctification, separation, dispensation, glorification, it's only then that you can come to the point where Paul says, I therefore beseech you by the mercies of God that I talked to you about for 11 chapters that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your Greek word logikos. It's logical. It's the logical thing. If you understand all that I've said, it's only logical. Then that you may know what is a good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Third word, desire, denial. Let him take up his cross daily. The third word is death. Gets worse, doesn't it? Now, these words have been so misunderstood. You've heard, I've heard others say, well, you know, the cross I bear in my life is my nagging wife, or my passive husband, or my overbearing mother-in-law, or my... My nasty boss or whatever. That's the cross I bear. That is so stupid, so foolish. It's just not, it's just not right. If you would have asked any disciple to whom Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, he would have known exactly what Jesus was saying. Why? The Roman general Varus, when Galilee came up with a revolt against the Roman government, General Varus crucified 2,000 Galileans shortly before Jesus spoke these words. And to prove to you as a Galilean insurrection against the government, crime does not pay, he crucified 2,000 on every road leading in and out of Galilee. And he left them on the cross. And you're walking along and you see your neighbor or your brother or, or your mother or whoever it is. The cross was an awful instrument of death. When Jesus said, take up your cross, he's saying, die. When Paul said, I die daily, it wasn't just a spiritualism. It was a reality that every day he went out of the arena, just like a lot of our chaplains in Pakistan do. We go there and we come home. We go there and we're out of there in five days. They're still there. Trust me, evangelical Christians are not loved in a place like Pakistan. Christ calls us to a life of, dis of obedience. And the last word is direction. Follow me. Follow me. And that says it all, doesn't it? That gets back to the words I said earlier by Dr. Truett. Know the will of God. Greatest knowledge. Do the will of God. Greatest achievement. Now I've got to move quickly to keep to my time here. Because I've got to save five minutes at the end for a video you've got to see. That will touch your heart. That will illustrate, hopefully, everything I've said. Let's go a little close with the reasons for commitment to Christ, verses 24 to 27. First of all, verse 24 is simply what I call the definition of life. First, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. Here it seems that Jesus points to the attitude of one who puts his emphasis on getting the best out of life for himself. It's all about myself. Jesus says that means certain loss. It is the one who gives up everything for Christ who actually saves the life. 
The person living without commitment to Christ lives without real, spiritual, eternal, heavenly meeting. I was just in Orlando the, the, the month of February, and I've got family down there, and my brother Ted's widow is down there, Peggy. And Ted was the founder of Pioneer's Mission Agency. Um, he went to heaven in 2003. His last words to his wife were, I love you, Peggy. I want to finish well. And he did. When I lost him, I lost the greatest spiritual motivator in my life. No one ever motivated me like Ted. Every day. I remember before he went to the Korean War, sat his baby brother down on the bed. I was about 10 years old at the time. And I can remember this day going through. I still got the little Gideon New Testament. I have it by my bedstand at home in the drawer. And I look at it every so often. And I remember my brother. He was saved while he was serving with the 1st Marine Division in recon in the Korean War. Dr. Billy Graham went to the front lines, preached on John 3.16 to these soldiers facing death daily. My understanding is that 90% of the platoon stood to their feet to trust Christ as their Savior. 70% of the platoon never came home. After the war and getting his college education, Ted entered the visitor's world. At the age of 39, he was the youngest national sales manager for the Wall Street Journal, Dow Jones, that they've ever had. He and his wife, Peggy, and four children have achieved the American dream. I was thinking today, I remember visiting them back, back at the end of the 1960s, going back over 40 years. And their beautiful home in Princeton, New Jersey, in-ground pool, bathhouse, three acres of land, a little lake out there. And uh, Ted was, was national sales manager in New York City. And by the way, he was a great witness for Christ. At his funeral, I met the president of Wall Street Journal. He looked at me in the eye and says, your brother led me to faith in Christ. Another regional director did this. He was a great witness for Christ. So it wasn't like a businessman that wasn't a faithful witness. But there was a nagging question that came to Ted, and it wouldn't leave him alone. The question was this, in his own words, what difference does it make how many people read the Wall Street Journal as far as eternity is concerned? He was making, selling millions. What difference does it make in eternity whether you read the Wall Street Journal or not? He resigned. He stepped out in faith. Couldn't get it with the mission board because he didn't have a seminary degree. I remember him telling me later with a smile on his face when I was president at Capital Bible Seminary, he said, Harry, God delivered me from a seminary education because he saw too many seminary graduates who could have cared less about the neighbor next door. Today, Pioneers, which started with two missionaries in 1979, is an international mission movement with bases in seven countries, mobilization initiatives, and 14 additional. They have 3,122 individual members serving on 315 church planning teams in 108 countries. Pioneers from all over the world are engaging 207 people groups representing 175 languages. Ted entered heaven November 19, 2003. I wonder, do you think he's glad he made that decision? What do you think? So when you look at what Jesus is saying, the definition of life, that illustrates it for me at least. Verse 25, the deceitfulness of accumulations. Look at verse 25. For what profit is a man if he gains the whole world, yet he himself is destroyed and loses his own soul? He uses as a hyperbole, doesn't he? No one's going to gain the wealth of the whole world. That's a, you're not going to own the world. 
But it's just a hypocrite. Suppose you could. And then you die and go to hell. And what have you really gained? No, it's not gain. It's all loss, isn't it? There's nothing wrong with being wealthy. If you're wealthy here tonight, I want to talk to you a little bit longer. Okay, I'm joking. C.S. Lewis wrote, Our Father refreshes us on the journey with some pleasant ends, but will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Good stuff. Just, just stuff. Just another home, another boat, another car, another cottage. Stuff. Can be burned up, destroyed. It's not your final home. You see, too many of us spend our lives mistaking these temporary residents for our true home. But we know our home is in another place and our heart is moving there. It's called heaven. A.W. Tozer said, any temporal possession could be turned into everlasting wealth. Whatever is given to Christ is immediately touched with immortality. Did you give him your home? Did you give him your cottage? Did you give him your boat? Did you give him your bank account? Did you give him your stock account? Did you give him your kids and your grandkids? Did you give him everything you have? If you haven't, you don't know anything about the Lordship of Christ. Lordship of Christ means I own nothing. I own, I don't own one thing. Not one. We're stewards. Last thing, the day of accountability. Verse 26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him, the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his fathers and of the holy angels. Matthew Henry wrote it all to be the business of every day to prepare for our last day. And with powerful appeal, Jesus paints two scenes. In one scene, men here in this life are ashamed of him. They refuse to be identified with him. For them, the cross is a scandal. And the other one, Jesus returns in the glory of the Father and the angels. And those who are, were ashamed to identify with him in his humiliation, find they cannot be identified with him in his glory. Character did not measure up to their earthly state. It did not measure up to their heavenly state. The choice is, as always, every man's to make. I'm going to close this message with a a video. Uh, It's five minutes long, just under five minutes. I hope you'll stay and watch it. It's a 21st century illustration of what we're talking about in this text here and explains it much better than I ever could. It's called Hannah Lee's Story. Along with her husband, Werner, and two children, John, Pierre, and Rodet, who left a very comfortable lifestyle in South Africa. She was a doctor in a trauma unit, and her husband, Werner, served as senior pastor of Dutch Reformed Church. They went as missionaries to Afghanistan in 2003. After the video, I'll make two remarks and we'll be done. If we can get the lights off, get the video going, I hope that you'll let the Lord touch your heart. Thank you. 
Probably most of you are like me when you see a film like this, it tears your heart out. You realize how soft you are, how soft I am. It's hard to preach a message like this tonight. I don't claim to have arrived. I've had a soft life. I've had an easy life. I don't know what it is to suffer. And then you see people who have suffered and lost everything. What I do know is this. Jesus calls us first to himself as our Savior. If you've never trusted Christ, I beg you, I plead with you tonight. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. If you know Christ as your Savior, then I, I urge you, I admonish you, I encourage you to trust Christ as the absolute Lord and Master of your life. Even if it costs you everything, it'll be worth it. God's will for my life is a little pamphlet I have shared with the pastor. And I know we don't normally give a public invitation here, and we're not going to tonight. But it says, whatever, whenever, wherever, my decision today, I declare that Christ is the Lord and master of my life. I will seek to discover God's plan for my life. By his power, I will be obedient to that plan starting right now, whatever, whenever, wherever. That's what I call you to. I got cards up there. I'll just stay around a little while after long. If you would like one, I'll just give it to you. won't ask you any questions. won't preach at you. won't say anything. I'll just give you the card. What I encourage you to do, it allows a place for somebody, a friend of yours, a pastor, a, a husband, a wife, whatever the case may be, to sign this card and sign it with you, then date it. Then what I do is I take a card like this, and then I, I just tuck it away in my Bible. So every time I open my Bible, there's my... There's my reminder. It's a stake I drive in the ground. I like to use that word. I drove two stakes in the ground in my life. I went forward twice when I trusted Christ and when I declared Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. And now for the last 50 years in serving the Lord, 51 years, I look back to those times. I drove a stake in the ground. I'm glad I did. I hope you'll do the same. And if you can't remember a time, A, you trusted Christ as your Savior, tonight's the night. This is the day of salvation. Or number two, you say, yeah, I know Christ, but he doesn't have everything there is to have. Then tonight, drive a stake in the ground. Let's stand, shall we please? And I'm going to pray and dismiss us with prayer. I'll be down here in front. And if you would like one of these cards, I'll be glad to give them to you. And uh, if that's a decision you would like to make. Holy Father, dismiss us now with thy blessing. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the richness of it. It's heritage. It's soundness to biblical truth. Bless the pastor, bless his leadership team, the other pastors, the congregation, men, women here. Help us, Lord, to give you all there is to have. We know eternally, 10,000 years from today, 50,000 years will be so glad we did. Dismiss us now with your blessing in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for coming. God bless you.